Welcome. You're listening to Sanseet. Where you'll find everything to do with spirituality, life lessons, holistic living, and medicine. To become your true self. We all have stories, journeys, experiences, and love. Here's your host, Erin O'Dowd. Hello and welcome on today's show of Sanseet. We have Elizabeth McRory. I discovered her through a really good friend who has been on the show, Aiden Story, and he told me all about her and I attended her lecture about chronic illness and it was amazing. Hello, welcome to the show, Elizabeth. How are you doing today? Thank you very much, Aaron. Very well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. What interested you in the area of psychology? Well, it's a very real but old-fashioned answer. Genuinely interested in people. From the time I was quite young, I was interested in people and their stories. And that's what drew me to psychology, was how people's stories affected their lives. And I was fascinated by it. And really wanted to explore it and understand it. Why were you fascinated by people? Just the stories or? Their stories and how small things in life can have a huge reverberation consequence on how their lives, the routes their lives take or choices they make and how with the opportunity to retell their story or reflect on it they could actually alter some of the things that were happening in their lives. Where did your own enthusiasm and interest for psychology come? I was a reader from the time I was about three years of age, so reading was a big passion. And I had read through all children's books by the time I was about eight, so I moved on to more adult books and started to read psychology, philosophy, and just the reading how people's lives worked, how emotion worked, how their consequences of actions or trauma had on people's lives in terms of biographies and memoirs made me completely fascinated by people and I was also if I was honest psychology I had always been interested in what we now call spirituality but in those days it was known as parapsychology the kind of spirit world and how that might blend with the concrete world and so I was always interested in that space and was there echoes of the past in who we were were there echoes of our ancestors in who we were and so that would have also been a big driver for me going into psychology. In your journey of being a psychologist did you get burnt out or bored for a while from doing it time after time? My journey has been unusual so I trained in clinical psychology and psychotherapy and worked in the health service here for a number of years, um, both in Dublin and then in the southeast for the Brothers of Charity. And in those days in psychology, there were very few of us, especially once you left Dublin. And so we did everything. We did child guidance, we did education, we did adult psychiatry, we did probation work, court, anything that required a psychologist we would have done and participated in. And then I decided to go to England um, for a few years and when I went for interviews for psychology, clinical psychologists in England they were really subspecialized in a way we weren't here in this is in the 80s so I went for an interview and it turned out to be for 
Asian boys, to work with Asian boys between the ages of 14 and 16 with moderate to severe mental handicap. And I remember thinking, that is so, so subspecialized. I'm not sure, coming from such a wide base, I could work on that level of narrowness. And so I decided to take a short break and I went into business. And my short break turned out to be over 15 years. Um, where I went into consulting, I did an MBA, and I was in the UK, I came back here, and ended up being head of HR consulting for KPMG. All of which I loved, because I was still working with people, and people were my passion. But when you become very senior in business, you end up not doing what your core skill is, and you end up writing business plans and doing accounts, and that was never me. So one day I decided it was time to hang up my hat in the business world, and I came back into practice. That was the early noughties. So I'd had a break from clinical work, and so when I came back into practice, I balanced working individually with people with business, and I retrained under a banner of psychology called Transpersonal, which looks at the whole person. It's very much a holistic model. So it says we have a physical body, an emotional body, a mental body, so our thoughts, etc and a spirit body or a sense of identity, who we really are. And when they all are in, working in accordance with each other, I suppose to use an old hippie phrase, you're in the zone, life goes smoothly. But if one gets knocked out, it impacts on the other. And we have to look at a person in that holistic sense. And that really resonated with me because when I've been in clinical work and when I've been in business, it became clear everybody's on a journey. And everybody has things that happen to them that affects that journey. And so I also at that point trained in Reiki. I did Sakim, I did analytical hypnotherapy. I went on and did a four-year course in Sacred Art of Living and Dying in the hospice. And then the, I trained as an Kara apprentice. And I did another couple of years of spirituality study. And then I did a PhD, all of which was about looking at the whole person and having the tools to work with people regardless of what their background was or what their issue was. What scared you to jump from something you've been into so long to business? It was an adventure. I was going to do it for two years. Psychology was in England had become so specialized, subspecialized. I thought, I loved the breadth of what we did in Ireland. You know, any day you did not know, you know, what you're going to do. One day you could have been doing child guidance the next day you could have been working in an institution for people with mental handicap. The next day you could be doing assessments for the probation courts. And I love that breadth. And I was really concerned for myself that to go so narrow, I wouldn't enjoy it. I might get bored. And I thought, well, I've only got to be in England for a year or two. I'll take a break. And I just happened to be very lucky that consulting at that stage was changing and they were starting to become interested in the people agenda. And the company that took me on, Coopers and Library does well, it's now PwC, were really trying to develop a change management model for clients around the people piece. And so that's how I ended up. I knew a lot about people. I knew nothing about business. And that's why I went and did an MBA at night time. It's interesting how people fascinate you and interest you not the, the topic of, of business. Oh, absolutely. Always have. People have been my thing. And I consider myself extremely privileged and lucky to be 30 plus years on and still love what I do. 
sitting in front of people, working with people. Someone that was scared, so being so specialised, you probably now are specialising between both worlds. How does that feel? I never think of myself as specialised. I think myself as on a, a life learning path. I never think, oh, I'm the expert. I think I'm privileged to have skills and resources that allow me to work and help people. I do like the variety, but actually the truth is I'm, I'm always working with people. I'm always looking at the well-being of people, whether it's a team in business or executive development work or somebody who comes to me in their private capacity to work with them, whether it's through a trauma or an emotional difficulty or a marital difficulty. It's about how can I work with them to facilitate their well-being again. Is there a, a system to get when a person comes into you and when they leave, do you go through a system of identifying what they're going through? Absolutely. I mean, the first time I'd ever I see somebody, is I ask lots of questions, general questions initially, to position them, social history, medical history, emotional history. And then I ask them to tell their story. And I listen to their story, but I listen not just with my ears. I've always said this, I try to listen very intuitively. And I always say, that's probably what I do well. I hear what's not being said. So I'm listening for that the whole time. And then I will spend a time, period of time reflecting on what I've heard and what's struck me about the engagement. And then normally we will discuss what might be the options in terms of an intervention. And for some people, just coming and having their story heard, being listened to without any agenda is enough because it, it allows them to hear themselves and get a perspective. And for others, it means they need to come back, they need to have talk further, or we, you know, sometimes it's a very specific intervention, sometimes it's much more general, traditional counselling. But because I listen not just with my ears, I think we identify what is suitable for that individual at this point in time. You say intuitively, are you looking through your eyes or what you pick up? How are you able to notice these through the conversation? I think we all have this capacity. Um, I start my day every day before I see clients, I meditate and I spend some time in quiet reflective practice before I start my day. And I will reflect on those who are coming to me during that day before I start. But when I'm talking and listening to people, yes, I'm listening with my ears and my eyes, but I'm also listening with my heart. So I'm hearing what's echoing inside me. So I, I see every encounter as a dialogue as opposed to what they used to call the Boober's it thou engagement. I don't see myself as the professional sitting removed. I see us as having a dialogue where I'm listening with all my senses to what you're saying and the, how it's also impacting on me. And then I'm seeing what is that telling me about what I'm hearing. Did you pick that skill up from doing the energy work and the holistic work or did that, was that naturally in you? Probably both. I think I always had that intuitive piece as a child. I think that exploration from very young age, from you know preteens of the Paris, what used to be known as the Paris psychology world, and spirit and energy probably allowed me to tune into it from a very young age. But then, you know, doing the energy healing work, learning about that, meditating every day, doing reflective practices myself, all helps hone that gift 
which we all have. It's, but most don't take the time to develop it. It's interesting how we, we all need the time to develop a skill in us. Absolutely. It's about awareness. It's about taking time to be aware of the self and listening and having the courage and the confidence to listen to inner voices and know when they're right. I think so many people are afraid of that, especially in today's world where you can tap Google and get an answer to everything, supposedly. We are losing the capacity that our grandparents and our great-grandparents had for intuitive knowing. But they worked at a slower pace in life and they listened more and they watched things in a different way. And we all need to do that if we're going to develop skills like this. Meditation is in your daily routine. How important do you think it is for someone to have it in their routine? Absolutely essential. And everybody, if I was honest, every single person virtually who comes to me will be encouraged into some form of meditation. So, so for many people, you know, 40 minutes or 20 minutes of meditation when they've never done it is too difficult. So I will introduce them to some relaxation tools, some easy breathing tools that allow them to be still and just be with themselves. And then I try to encourage. So yes, I think everybody needs to learn to meditate. Now meditation doesn't have to be sitting. It can be going for a walk, but very walking with awareness of what's around you. It can be doing one task, but focusing completely on that task, the activity, rather than allowing the mind wander all over the place. It's like a dog, dog will wander. I think the mind is like that, but meditation just brings it back to that walking on the lead in some way. Absolutely. It actually gives the mind permission to be free. We have a mind that is full of random thoughts that go round and round at speed, and we have the awful belief that those thoughts are fact and reality and they drive such anxiety when in truth they're just random pieces of energy that we attach emotion to but meditation sets us free from that it allows us just to be and it allows in that being of ourselves something deep within us to start to come alive when you discovered meditation is this the feeling you had yourself Absolutely, but I would utterly admit that I had to train myself to sit still, to meditate. I was always comfortable with stillness in small bursts, but the discipline of every day when life is busy, to be still, to give that time over and to give it over, recognize its importance to practice. I would also often tell the story that when I first started to train and learn about meditation, I had a very young family. I was working still in the corporate world, so I was working very long hours. I remember being on a program where they were saying, well now, you need to get up at sunrise to meditate, to get the best benefits from meditation. So five o'clock or four o'clock, whatever, you know, to, that quiet time to meditate is really good practice. And I remember the time putting my hand up and going, but I worked till nearly midnight at 1 a.m. a lot of nights. And I'm up to start my day at six. And they said, well, get up another hour earlier. And I remember thinking it was, that was unrealistic, that we needed to learn how to do meditation 
and be still in ways that are realistic and we can adapt to our lives. Otherwise it won't happen. And that's why on a really busy day, if I don't have five clients from very early on, I haven't managed to meditate for the period I'd normally do, I will still create space for five minutes or 10 minutes stillness before I get out of the bed, while I'm having a coffee, I'll come into the office and I'll just sit still. And during the day then I'll gather moments because then it's doable in our world. It's like the coffee in the morning. It helps us set up for the, the day that's ahead. I can honestly say hand and heart at this stage. The days I don't take that time, my days always feel slightly off kilter. The days I say, oh, I don't have time or I get distracted. The day, the rhythm of the day never seems to be quite right. And those thoughts in monkey mind seem to just escalate. And so I have learned that even if it, I'm under pressure to take a little time, just sets, as you rightly say, Aaron, it sets the day upright. What is monkey mind? Monkey mind is those thoughts that jump from here to there in repetitive patterns. And it happens for all of us. And it's like those thoughts a lot of the time are just jumping around the back of our brain, but they're there the whole time, niggling at us, making suggestions, criticizing us. And when we start to meditate, they escalate, they get faster. And it's like there's a loop of these thoughts going on and on, jumping here and jumping there. And it means that our focus and our concentration gets affected. Our sense of well-being gets affected because we're absorbing all these random thoughts and thinking they're real. And the thing about meditation or contemplative practices of any sort is they channel the, the attention and they channel focus. And that quietens those monkeys in our brain, basically those thoughts, those random thoughts. Wow, it's like it, it, the meditation helps flow happen. Absolutely. And we know now that meditation helps the different parts of our brain and our brain waves to even out. And information flows in a different way. Information flowing down into our body and our hearts flows differently. And from our hearts back to our brains, we now know there's more neurons almost behind our heart than in our brain. There's more messages going from the heart to the brain and almost from the brain to the body. And meditation allows us to enter a different plane, evens out how those messages and information flows. It must feel and, and see that the heart is more important than the brain through who we are. You know, go back to Egyptian times, the ancient Egyptians. They had no time for the brain. They thought it was just something. So when they were mummified bodies, they just scooped it out and threw it away. But the heart, they thought, was the center of the soul, the center of the being, and they revered it, and they removed it, and they treated it with care and protection because it was so important. It was the sacred organ. And then we moved through time to, I suppose, the enlightenment and the age of reason. And we went, oh, the heart's just an organ that pumps blood around the body. It's all about the brain and reason. And we lost something in that essence. And now we're beginning to recognize that the heart is more than just an organ. It's the doorway to something deeper within us. And that the heart and the brain need to be equally honored within us. So our feeling body, if you like, needs to be treated with the same respect we treat our mental body, our thought processes. How can we have the brain and the heart in equal? Because they each serve us a, a 
purpose. We aren't just cognitive beings. We're not just beings of our brain. We're beings of our body and we're beings of feeling. In many ways we disregard and we were taught to disregard the feeling that it was not as important or reliable as thought. Now we know that our thoughts aren't real either. And many of our feelings can guide us when we listen to them, to good practice, the right decisions. And so we really do need, that's why they're equally important. When did you discover the this connection? Was it through meditation? I think combination of lots of things. You can't work with people and listen to their stories and their sorrows and their challenges without realizing the importance of feeling, the importance of the heart space for us. When you adopt contemplative practices, much of the contemplative practices are about stilling the mind and entering yourself and the world through the heart space. So you begin to both, so from real lived experience of my work and from the contemplative practices, and then by reading and scholarly study, you, I've come to this space where I really believe heart and mind must be treated with equal respect. One doesn't survive without the other. A robot is nobody, you don't want to cuddle up to a robot or tell your deepest worries, fears and sorrows because you don't expect to be engaged with from a heart space. But equally, a puppy dog who you will love from the heart space utterly and who will love you back from the heart space, you're not going to have a philosophical discussion with or planning discussion about your life or your life story. And that's why honouring both, both are embodied in us. Is that the male and female in us, the heart and the head? I think the male and female is very definitely in us. And I think, I'm not sure, I think it's unfair because let's be honest, we're going to say, the instinct is to say that the brain is the male, it's logic and reason, and the heart is female. And I don't think that's true because I think the male and female are within the heart and they're within the mind. And so I think it's more about, I think this is one of the things we do, it's the either or rather than the and and, so the male and the female energies are in the heart. We'll express them differently, perhaps. So sorrow, I'm about to say, take sorrow and say maybe the male will express sorrow through action and the female will express it through talking. But actually, that's also personality driven. You know, so there are women, I had a client today whose way of dealing with sorrow has always been to march on, to get up and do things. And I've had males whose way to deal with grief has been to withdraw and to go to a place of silence. So I think with all of us, there's male and female, and I think it's about learning to balance them, but I don't think one is in the cognitive process and one's in the feeling processes. I think we're both, we're in both. And it's and, and, it's the balance. The word balance is so important, but yet as well as hard to find throughout life. Balance is about equilibrium. In many ways, balance is about non-attachment. It's about letting things happen and not cling to them. Whether it's negative things and sorrow and, or positive things and joy. 
it's about always trying to return to a place of equilibrium. Equanimity, one of the great Buddhist precepts is to achieve equanimity, or in the Chinese Tao, it's about a place of balance. And it's not about a place of dullness, it's about a place of where we can experience the different aspects of life, but not cling and return to a centered place. Balance is a centered place. The centered place is the whole body. Absolutely. It's, it's not centered just in the brain or just in the body. It's the whole being. And it's about just being. You know, to be centered is about just having an awareness about yourself, your presence, where you're situated, and not being pulled towards the negative overly or towards the positive overly, but recognizing they're both there and returning to the center. It's kind of like an abacus of the body through when it's all in center, there is flow. Energy flows, well-being flows, joy flows, sorrow flows, it all flows. Health flows. Life gets in the middle of the way and it's with the boulders and it's hard to continue that flow. But I'd say meditation provides that unblocking. That's exactly it. That the whole point is life does get in the way of balance. And because we haven't been taught to let things happen and let go, be present to them, but not cling to them. They distract us and they move us and we go off at tangents or we get stuck in places. And things, whether it's meditation or journaling or contemplative prayer, they all help return us to the center. It's not about denying the negative or the sorrows or denying the joys and the positives. It's about accepting them, recognizing them, being present to them, and return to the center. So how does journaling and prayer fit into this? Journaling is one of the most profoundly useful tools anybody can learn. I always say it's the cheapest form of psychotherapy you'll ever have because it's the cost of a copybook. Um, it allows us hear our inner voice. It allows us time to let that inner voice start a dialogue with us. So journaling allows conversations to happen within. And by putting it down on paper, if we park our fears around writing well or what other people might think or read, you can start to have a discourse with your current outer self and a wise inner self, your true self, if you like. And with practice, that can be really insightful. In inner sight, insightful is about going into those depths. And journaling allows that. But remarkably, journaling has now been demonstrated to reduce visits to doctors, improve our immune system, reduce taking medication over time, and has had very beneficial effects on people with chronic illness like arthritis and chronic pain, all of which is being now demonstrated through scientific studies, which shows that there is a real value to it. And then if I flip to prayer, I'm not necessarily talking about the way we would have learned to pray as children, which was to say rote prayers and petition and petition God and keep petitioning God because we were never taught to listen to God. We were never taught to listen to the divine source, whatever you want to call it. And contemplative prayer is about that. You use a word or a line from a prayer or it could be as simple as here I am 
using that to anchor you so you don't get distracted by monkey mind. To allow whatever's within start to rise up. You mentioned in your talk about uh, breath and beads. How does that fit into bringing the person back to centre and balance? Breath, it sounds ridiculous, but breath is what gives us life in many ways. If we can't breathe, we don't live. Breath is constantly there and yet we have no value on it. It is, you know, if we go to the Bible, it talks about the breath of God and how he breathed life into the universe. So breath is really important and yet we ignore it. And what happens in our lives is we get so stressed or busy, we often skip breath. We're not even aware of it. We hold our breath, we skip our breath, which blocks oxygen flowing through our bodies which actually sends a message to our subconscious that we're under attack, there's a problem. And so we become anxious and it escalates all our fears and our anxieties. If we focus on our breath, if we take the time every so often during the day to count our breath, no fancy yoga breathing, no fancy any type of breathing, just breath one in, breath two in, breath one in, breath one out, breath two in, breath two out. If you do that a couple of times you can't miss a breath you can't hold your breath so oxygen flows your subconscious gets a message that everything's okay but it also quietens you if you take one breath and count it in for four and release it for six counts you do that a couple of times anxiety levels diminish really quite rapidly you just begin to feel stabilized and it is the oldest known way of relaxing and centering yourself. If you go, go back to our Celtic ancestors, they had a set of beads. If you look at them initially, you think they're like rosary beads, but they're not. There's three circles of 50 beads, and they would have walked and used the beads to breathe. So on each breath, they'd have breathed in one, breathe it out, breathe in, breathe out. And for the first 50, they used it to take themselves from the outer world of people and things into their inner world. And the next 50, they work through the inner world, you know, of their feelings and the body sensations. And on the last 50, they went to the place of nyarth, which meant no thing. And it was the idea of actually being at the center of your being, no thing and everything. Those beads go back to our Celtic ancestors, second, third century, certainly they were still being used in the 6th century, when the monasticization of Ireland had started. So we knew intuitively for, for all time that breath was a way of centering ourselves and bringing ourselves back to a place of well-being. But in our modern world, we don't take time to do those things. And they're so simple and they help us so much. It shows and indicates that the ancient and simple is the best way. Absolutely, there was rich wisdom in the ancient worlds and a lot of which we shrugged off but actually just because it was simple didn't mean that there wasn't a richness and wisdom and insight and sometimes the simplest of guidance is the most profoundly helpful. In the modern world we live today with research papers and science and yet we have the ancient ways uh, slipping through it must be interesting to see the, the both worlds combine. You see, what happened was we got to the age of enlightenment 
we basically said we are solid concrete beings and reason and logic is all that matters. And if we couldn't prove it, touch it and feel it, it didn't exist. And we did a huge disservice to humanity at that point because we lost the sense of the numinous other, nature and spirit and all those things. And what's happened now is with the development of quantum physics and neuroscience, we're beginning to see that actually the two can be married together. And we can see how some of the old practices and the wisdoms really had a foundation. We, they just didn't articulate it in scientific terms. You know, be careful what you wish for your grandmother that said you might get it. Now we understand that with quantum physics, that there is a string theory that means everything is connected and our thoughts are energy sources that we send out and we can create our own realities. What in the past, we thought that was kind of just old fashioned stories, not real. You talked about chronic illness. It's like the monkey mind is balanced when you're centered in meditating, it balances everything. I wonder if you can give a small talk about how you can slowly kind of reduce the chronic illness through these tools. Chronic illness, by its very definition, chronicity, means it's not necessarily curable. When I work with people with chronic illness, I would always emphasize that we're not looking for a cure, we're looking for healing. And there's a very subtle difference between cure and healing. Healing is about well-being. It's about living the richest and best life you can in the place you are. But most people are constantly chasing cure and that distracts them from healing and well-being. And one of the things we do know from science and from contemplative practices is that by introducing some of the contemplative tools, such as meditation, reflective practices, it helps to begin to develop a sense of well-being. By introducing care of the self, acceptance of where I am today is really important for transitioning into a place of well-being. So many people fight acceptance. They feel they have to fight. I will overcome this. What they forget is they go to war with their own bodies. And it's a battle we can't win because we are embodied beings. So we're fighting ourselves. And chronic illness takes us from the world we have known because we lose a sense of ourselves in the sense we often can't do the things we did before. We can't maybe socialize as much. We might be able to do our jobs that we did before, relate to people in the same way. It, it packs in all sorts of ways. And people spend so much time being bitter about that, being upset, or trying to pretend that that isn't the case. They get stuck. And the one thing we know about chronic illness is it takes us from where we have been and we often end up in a liminal place of transition. And for many people, that space is a place of darkness. But actually, with the right approach and a certain degree of acceptance, it can become a rich place of new birth. So liminality is a place where you're betwixt and between. You're betwixt and between the old world you knew before you became ill and a new world of what is possible. And rather than treating it as a place of darkness, if we enter it and allow ourselves to grieve what we have lost, because we have to do that, and gradually accept where we're at and learn, 
appreciation for the good parts of what we have in our lives now. Learn contemplative practices and reflective practices that allow us to journey within to know who we are. All of these can help us down the road to forming a new identity. And it doesn't have to be an illness identity, but it's a new identity with acceptance and where I am now. And so that's why creating the opportunity in the space for people with chronic illness to come and talk, to enter dialogue, first of all, where they can tell their illness story and have it heard. People with chronic illness go to doctors and doctors diagnose disease. And disease is what the doctors then set out to treat. However, there's something else beyond that. For the person experiencing the illness, there is a story and they need to tell that illness story. They need to have it heard. And in having telling it and having it heard, they also hear it themselves. And that allows them to move through this liminal space of transition to a new place. And so I always say when people come to me, we talk about, I talk about, I don't talk about psychotherapy, I talk about dialogue, authentic dialogue, where they can hear and be heard. Practices that they can do to relate and get to know themselves in this new place. And all of which is aimed at improving their sense of well-being and a sense of healing. So they live differently with their illness. They're not consumed by it. They're separate from it. Their own identity is once again intact. So I'm not my pain. I am not my illness. I'm a person with pain or with this illness. And it's a very subtle difference. But healing is what we're about as human beings. Healing ourselves is what we should be doing throughout our lives. It's all about homeostasis at the end of the day. Absolutely. Balance, century, equanimity, equilibrium. It's all that. And awareness. Who am I? How am I in relation to the world? How am I in relation to myself in the world? It's interesting how these are the conversations we have internally, but externally we don't, when we don't say it, it builds and builds and builds. And this is where it becomes an issue. When we just story within ourselves, we often lose perspective because we either, the thoughts that I'm talking about earlier that jump around our minds start to make fact out of some of the story that we're writing within ourselves. But it's not always true. So we talk about the creation story in Genesis, in the Old Testament, but actually we all have our own creation myth that we create about ourselves. Some of it is inherited, some of it we take on from our parents, some of it we take on from the doctors who give us diagnosis. And if we just allow those creation myths to run around inside us, what is not necessarily true, which is myth, becomes our solid truth, and it can be limiting to us. But if we tell our story to another who's able to listen with openness and we know we're being heard we can also hear ourselves and we begin to see the difference between what we thought was real and what is true you said something that kind of makes interesting what's true and not true do we have that conversation in our head of and hide what can be true and what cannot be true absolutely we have all sorts of tools and mechanisms within ourselves to sometimes avoid reality, avoid truth. We create a story around everything. So we can take a situation and we create a story unconsciously around it, which diverts us from recognizing what is true and not true. So we talk about ourselves, I, I read this somewhere and I thought it was an extraordinarily good description of us. 
Darwin called us Homo sapiens, but actually we're Homo narratives. We are human storytellers, but we're not always conscious of making up the stories. So we lose sight of what is fact and what is a story of creation. And so by telling our story and repeating what's going on inside ourselves to another, we begin to hear it differently. Likewise, when we journal, we begin to get a different perspective. In creating a story, is that through imagination through our head or just the chit-chat that's happening? Some of it's through imagination, some of it through learned experience, what we've been told, some of it's through values that we haven't even thought about, whether we own them or not, and some of it is just through things we've absorbed in the day-to-day of our lives and the kind of half conversations we have within ourselves. Wow, you, you wouldn't think that until mm. until now, mm. you know. But we see, we do all that in an, in an unaware way. So it's happening almost subliminally. And that's why, especially when something like a trauma, a tragedy or a chronic illness hits, you need a space where you can actually talk to another. So that you can, if you like, sieve out the chaff from the wheat, where you can see what is true and truth going forward and what is just part of this world I've created unconsciously. It's interesting how consciously this thing happens, but yes, subconsciously, what happens there? Well, our subconscious is constantly absorbing in information and almost measuring it up, up against past experience. All those thoughts, it basically takes on as real that go through our heads. And we always explained to, I was explained to people, our subconscious doesn't see things in the negative. So if, for example, you say to a child, don't drop that plate, that child's subconscious sees drop the plate. So our subconscious is really clever in some ways. It runs our bodies, it manages all our internal processes and it stores our memories, etc. But it's also quite simplistic. So it doesn't process things. If it's learned and experienced, if, for example, you had a bad experience as a child and with a dog or a cat, you may then go through your whole life your subconscious saying to you, stay away from dogs, they're dangerous. Now that's not true, but that becomes part of them. And then it becomes, you're afraid of dogs, or you, dogs don't like you. And that becomes part of your story. While in reality, it was a one incident that you now accumulated as part of your story. So it's not true that all dogs don't like you or that you're afraid. You'd be wary of all dogs that are dangerous. That's not true. But that has been what your subconscious has done. So it is really important to listen to your story, to, to reflect, is this true? Is this reality in the real sense of the word as opposed to a created reality? What's the difference between subconscious and consciously and how do they merge together? So the subconscious, we're not thinking in terms of a, a, a kind of a very simplistic level. We don't think about, oh, is the blood going to my heart and is it pumping around and is it going down to all my organs? And that all happens in the subconscious, in, the, in another space of our body is running that. Consciously, we're thinking, oh, I need to put on the dinner. I need to, I need to go to the shops. I need to do X, Y, and Z. Now, this, these are the tasks. That's conscious thought. And when we get used to doing something, it slips to the unconscious and, and thereby into the subconscious. So driving a car, when you start to drive a car, you are very conscious. You remind yourself to switch on the ignition, put your foot on the clutch and on the brake, like ease off the clutch. It's a process that you go through and you're really conscious about it. 
gradually over time, you don't think about it anymore. Your body does it for you. So many drivers have the experience of arriving at a point, a destination, going, I have no idea how I got here. Because they subconsciously drove their car and their conscious thoughts were elsewhere. Very important because we couldn't consciously think of everything. But we have to be aware sometimes our subconscious takes over and responds without us thinking about it. And the responses might be appropriate now. So it is actually not appropriate for our subconscious to take over and drive the car. It's actually quite dangerous. Nine or ten times you get away with it, but the ones you don't. It's not appropriate for our subconscious to respond always to a dog in the negative because it was a bad experience. But if we're not thinking about it and reflecting on it, that's what happens. And so one of the things we have to do is bring ourselves back to conscious awareness in our lives. And a really good way to do that is throughout the day, every so often, to stop and look what you're doing and go, where am I? What am I doing? Who's around me? And just ground yourself back into your body and your space and awareness of what I'm doing, how it feels. And it takes a minute, but it's actually really healthy because it brings us back and it makes us aware again. Awareness is the key for everything. <laughs> it just shows you a small little word can be so powerful. And we have learned to disregard it. The noise of today's world is so intense this little space for awareness between technology and all the machinery around us. And we, there's so much distraction and noise in our lives and so much ease with which we can do things without thinking about it. Awareness gets pushed aside. And that's the purpose. For it to be healthy, well, whole human beings, awareness needs to be brought back to the centre. If you met someone in the street and there was, and they said, Elizabeth, can you give me one piece of advice or a gem, what would it be? I think I would live each day with space for awareness, reflection and appreciation. That's at some point every day you create space for appreciation and gratitude, reflection, and in that you have awareness. And I think over time, the quality of your life and your well-being will be positively altered. Elizabeth, I want to say thank you so much for coming to the show and sharing what you got to share. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for spending the time to listen to the show. If you want to learn more, check out sansit.com. That's S-A-N-C-I-T dot com. Join Sansit Group on Facebook and contact us if you have any questions. Until next time, have an awesome day and rock on.